Founders, welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. Okay, founders, welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with the co-founder of Brandpoint Services, John St. Pierre. The physical location of your business is the heart of your brand, and a renovation project can be a stressful but important opportunity to expand your reach, especially recently with COVID-compliant adjustments needing to be made in record time. Businesses are appreciating the value of a service provider that takes their branding and workplace seriously and can complete a project to the highest success in the shortest amount of time possible. Brandpoint Services, started by John and his co-founder, Rich Hoffman, is one of the leaders in the industry, recently listed on the Inc. 5000 of fastest-growing companies. The company continues to expand with high praises from its clients, and John and Rich have started their own podcast, Entrepreneurs United, to share their experiences and collaborate with the knowledge of other experts. Brandpoint Services is growing like crazy, so John, my friend, let's get right into it. Thank you for being here today, buddy. Awesome. Thanks for having us. Yes, sir. Well, tell me, how did we get into this? Yeah, so I guess the origin story here, Drew, is uh, grew up in, in, in Canada, always had aspirations to be an entrepreneur from you know, selling chocolate bars to raise school money for fundraisers to you know, starting small little businesses uh, to, to mow lawns or do other things back in Montreal and ended up coming to school in the U.S., um, was studying accounting. Uh, my, my father, who uh, had always told me, if you're going to get into business, learn the numbers first, and then everything else will follow. So that was good direction on his part, and uh, ended up getting a degree in, uh, in accounting at the University of Southern Maine uh, here in the United States. And, okay. and from there, I uh, was offered a job. While I was in college, one of the issues that I had, Drew, was being Canadian, um, I couldn't necessarily get a summer job in the U.S. like most uh, students, because I didn't have a student visa, uh, excuse me, a work visa, I should say. And so the first summer that I came to the U.S. to go to school, I had to go back to Canada and I went up to northern Ontario to plant trees in the summertime, Wow! Uh, which they pay you about 10 cents a tree. Uh, you're basically working, you know, 12 hour days with uh, black, you know, black fly nets all over your body uh, and, uh, and bitter cold uh, in the summertime. So that wasn't too much fun. Uh, and so the next year when I came back to school, I was trying to figure out a way that I could stay in the United States for a summer job. But because I didn't have a work visa, there was only two ways I could do that. One was get an internship at an accounting firm and not get paid, but get an internship and, and learn more about accounting, which didn't really excite me too much. <laughs> but the other one was to start my own business. Because if you are an entrepreneur, you don't need to put yourself on payroll. You don't need W-2. Therefore, you don't need a work visa and you can be an entrepreneur. Hmm. And so I was in my dorm room uh, that year and I saw a poster to start your own painting business. Uh, it was a college pro painting franchise uh, brochure. So I grabbed it and I inquired and I found myself that summer running a painting company uh, as, as a summer job. And I thought that was pretty interesting. I didn't know anything about painting, uh, but I had to learn the painting trade, learn how to hire student painters, uh, go sell paint jobs, do the payroll, do the accounting, do the marketing. There's a little bit of an MBA, if you will, while I was in college to run my own painting business. Yeah. And I ended up doing that successfully for a couple of years. And College Pro had franchisees all across the country, and, and they offered me an opportunity to move to Chicago and become a general manager for the franchisor. And they would help me get a work visa, a TN status, and that met my satisfaction. So 
ended up moving out to Chicago to be a general manager for College Pro Painters, which was a subsidiary of First Service Corporation, a, a, a publicly traded company in Canada on the TSX. And so that was an interesting opportunity for me right out of college. Um, it was still very entrepreneurial because I was hiring college students and teaching them how to run their own painting business and all yeah. the aspects that go along with it. Well, there's about 20 to 25 general managers of College Pro across the country, and we were all very entrepreneurial, very gung-ho, and this was around the late 90s. And in the late 90s, we all wanted to be on the dot-com wagon. Uh, the problem was none of us knew anything about technology, but we were very entrepreneurial. And uh, one of our fellow GMs uh, by the name of Eric Debley started a company called handymanonline.com. Hmm. And what a great concept that was. The concept was if you need your roof done, your kitchen done, or anything done, go online to handymanonline.com, put in your information, and we'll send pre-screen contractors to your home and give you a free estimate. And what handymanonline.com would do is we would go to contractors and sell them lead packages. So yeah. we'll help you do marketing because we knew how to do marketing. We had learned through our painting experience how to do direct mail, trade shows, lawn signs. We had figured out that gamut. So uh, Eric started handymailonline.com and it started booming. Uh, and a lot of us were very excited about the dot-com boom. So a lot of the GMs of College Pro moved over to Handyman Online and we started growing the company exponentially across the country. Uh, got VC funded uh, out of Silicon Valley to grow the business even further. And it was really like a lightning round, right? We were kind of moving real fast, traveling across the country. I was the vice president of sales for that business. And uh, we grew the business and, and had a lot of fun until the dot-com crash. And, uh, you know, things started slowing down. The next round of funding didn't come. Ultimately, the business assets were sold to another company called Service Magic, which was a competitor. Uh, Service Magic today is homeadvisor.com. So, oh, wow. You know, if, you st if you type in handymanonline.com on your computer, homeadvisor.com comes up. I mean, that was basically our concept before the crash that we yeah. were able to kind of get through that period. But it was an incredible entrepreneurial experience, right? Yeah. So, I can remember driving back to Chicago. I had moved out to Beaverton, Oregon for a short period of time. That's where our headquarters were. And I can remember driving back to Chicago in my Jeep Cherokee, listening to Anthony Robbins' personal power tapes, like trying to bring myself back up because we had just yeah. lost all of our stock options. Everything we thought we had was gone in, in a moment. And trying to think about what I was going to do next. And uh, got a call from... Um, uh, a really good friend of mine now, but at the time didn't know him that well, who was the CEO and co-founder of a company called Serta Pro Painters, which was a sister company to College Pro Painters, uh, who had an opportunity in Philadelphia that he was looking for some help with. So I ended up coming to visit him in Philadelphia and working with him for a short period of time and um, was looking for something new to start up, looking for an my new entrepreneurial venture to get going in, in the early 2000s. And I had met a gentleman that used to work for Fujifilm. And this gentleman uh, knew of a contract that Fujifilm was going to be installing 3,000 kiosks in Walmarts and Walgreens across the country. And, and if you think about the early 2000s, you had, you know, film cameras were moving to digital cameras. So you could take the digital card out of your camera, put it in the kiosk and order your prints. And so Fuji was installing these 3,000 kiosks in all these different retail locations. And so I was at a lunch with this guy, his name is Jeff Metzger. And uh, he said, listen, I think I can get this contract. And I said, well, listen, I know how to find contractors. I can know how to find them across the country because we did this sure. on online. You get the contract. I'll find the contractors. Let's start a new business. And his name was Jeff Metzger. So what the co-founder, uh, one of the co-founders of, of, of Brandpoint was actually Jeff Metzger, not Rich Hoffman. Rich Hoffman was, uh, was a colleague of mine with College Pro and became one of our early employees at uh, Brandpoint and, oh. and good friends. Um, 
so in 2003, we started, a, a, the company was actually called Rhombus Group. Uh, there was four partners and uh, we started successfully growing the business bootstrap style. Uh, and the idea was Jeff would go get new contracts with retail environments to install equipment, fixtures or uh, kiosks. And I operationally would hire contractors across country to go install them. And so Fuji would pay us $500 to install kiosks. We'd pay the vendor $300. We would make 200, pretty simple math and very scalable. Mm. And lo and behold, from 2003 to 2007, we had grown the business on a bootstrap level to about $5 million in uh, annual revenues, which was fantastic for us. And then the 2008 recession hit and then boom, you know, now we're dealing with customers that are going bankrupt. You're going with different, you know, economic issues that are going on, trying to survive, trying to make payroll, trying to really get through that period. And there's a lot of stuff that happened in between there, Drew, but from that moment to where we are today, uh, you know, a lot of iterations of the business, uh, we've grown the business to uh, around $60 million in, in revenues in the construction, facilities, maintenance, installation, and project space uh, in commercial environments. So a, lo- a lot of stuff has happened between now and then, but that's kind of the origin story of the business. That's amazing, man. I mean, that time period that you were getting your chops in entrepreneurism is really interesting as well. Yeah. And then the kind of variety of businesses you got to be a part of is really neat when you think back on those first two what what do you think was the biggest um reframe or learning or or things that kind of clicked for you in that that painting business and in the um in the that kind of dot-com handyman online business for you yeah well like i said before like that painting business was um really an mba for me Mm -hmm. uh and and a lot of um college pro franchisees and general managers have gone on to great things in, in, in business, partly because you're learning by fire, right? Trial by fire. Sure. Um, you're hiring your friends in college to go paint houses and you're training them on how to paint. And some of them would rather enjoy their summer than show up to the job. And you're dealing with all these different situations that are going on by running a painting business, right? And you're running a business for the first time and you have payroll and you have you know, checks uh, that are coming in from homeowners and you have to do marketing and there's a whole bunch of different components. And the biggest thing I learned through that college pro experience, both as a franchisee and also a general manager, when I had to teach others to do it, was the power of what we called fundamental ability, uh, the ability to regulate your mood. Mm. And, you know, the lows can't be so low and the highs can't be so high and you got to get through and you got to persevere through these situations of a homeowner calling you that the painted the wrong, the house, the wrong color, and now you got to go back and do it or much worse, right? They didn't paint it correctly or they didn't do stuff correctly. Uh, all the way down to your employees all quit on you and you got to hire new employees because the homeowner's pissed because you got to get their house installed, you know, painted by next week. So there's a lot of, of, of uh, moments where you really had to learn as an entrepreneur how to regulate your mood. Uh, in the face of adversity and persevere through it. Mm. And, you know, College Pro was also known for a lot of college students who would go run their painting business and would fail uh, because they weren't able to persevere through those real tough moments of how am I going to make payroll on Friday? I got to go sell a few more paint jobs and I got to keep, you know, keep the business going. So that's what I learned in that venture. And I'd say with, with Handyman Online, uh, I learned the power of growth and scalability uh, with that business. I mean, we had grown from, you know, Eric had grown the business from one small office in, in uh, Beaverton, Oregon to 35 offices across the country, you know, hundreds of sales staff uh, and really how to scale and grow a business exponentially. Yeah. Uh, and by creating proper training and, and leadership models and development models. 
uh, we were able to scale that business really quickly, obviously with, with the timing of that dot-com boom when we, were, <laughs> when we were moving. But the ability to scale a business nationally was, uh, was something I took a lot of pride in and enjoyed that process. Obviously, the end result wasn't so great, but. Yeah. <clears throat> well, that, I'm curious on that, like with Handyman Online, yeah. especially being that early on with that kind of concept, how did you find that feels like a lot of uh, a lot of effort and a lot of time that it would take to even find that many contractors, mm-hmm. take them through whatever vetting process while simultaneously also having to find the, the audience in their geographic area yeah. like to build both of those bases at once from scratch seems like a daunting task, was it? Yeah, it was. And, and certainly at that time as well, if you roll the camera back to that, like the late 90s, it's not as if everybody was on their mobile phones on the internet or, right. you know, on the internet at all. And so what we did is uh, we did a little bit of a brick and mortar approach to the dot-com business, which is we would literally put an office in Atlanta and we would hire six to seven account executives that would meet with contractors all day long and hmm. say, look, you're not good at marketing. We are. Uh, how about we get leads for you? We'll be your marketing agent, right? And then that team would also go out to local home shows in the Atlanta market. We do direct mail in the Atlanta market. We'd you know, invest in SEO at that time in the Atlanta market. And we, would, we knew how to generate leads because with our college pro background, that's what we did is we had to generate leads as students on how to paint houses, right? So we yeah. knew how to generate a cost per lead. So if we could generate a cost per lead of $25 in the Atlanta market for house painting, we knew we could sell it to painters three or four painters to go give estimates and that would generate $100 to $125 of revenue for that $25 lead. So it was really generating leads and what your cost per lead was and how many times could you sell that lead to preferred contractors that were licensed, insured, you know, Better Business Bureau verified, that kind of stuff. Wow. So, uh, we, so we had to scale that to your point. You know, we had to open up offices and really get a feed on the street approach to bring on the contractors. And so <clears throat> you were you got funding. Is that how you were able to go ahead and open those offices and hire those people to go get the contractors and all that kind of thing? That's right. Interesting. What was, what did you learn about uh, taking outside money? Well, you know, I wasn't involved in the, in the raising of the funds in that process uh, that was done by, by Eric and others of, of the group. And, you know, at that time, it was necessary. You, you had to raise that capital. You had to take advantage of the market boom. Uh, unfortunately, what happened is the next round of capital didn't come. Mm. And that's when you know, things didn't work out so well. I, you know, subsequently, past that experience, learned a lot of other experiences through bringing on outside capital. Yeah. Uh, that is, has that is, uh, taught me a lot of lessons about the power of building your own cash profitable business uh, that you retain equity in. Um, and uh, so... You know, I think that that experience, you know, taught me how you can scale real fast. Um, and on, on the capital side, I, I, I more looked at that as the, the moment of time, right? There was a dot-com crash, everybody reversed course, but you were at the mercy. If you're going to take on that capital, you're at the mercy of the direction they're going to want to go with the business. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. our business had to follow suit. Gotcha. Uh, so let's get into uh, the, the story of the company you're running now. Yeah. How long did it take? for you guys to see that go from idea to a profitable business? I would say, um, well, good. you know, there's two ways to answer that, right? We went from idea to generating revenue instantly, right? Because we started the business on the basis of winning a contract. Gotcha. And we're able to scale right away to generate margin. However, in that industry, 
you know, and in a lot of industries and in small, medium sized businesses, until you get to a certain scale, it's hard to get beyond the lifestyle business. Like we were paying ourselves an income. It was a nice business, but we weren't really making a lot of money. Uh, you know, when you talk, when you start adding staff and insurance and accounting and, and all those types of things, you know, we knew that until we crossed that $10 million revenue stream, it'd be really hard to really earn some substantial profits on this business, but it'd be a good lifestyle business. Yeah. And I think that's where we got stuck as we were growing that we grew the business to 5 million. That was a great accomplishment and we were making some good income, but the business necessarily wasn't a huge value. Ultimately, when you think about the EBITDA of the business and the, yep. the multipliers and, and, the, and the things of that sort. And what happened is you, you get hit by the recession. Then you're like, oh, my gosh, we just, you know, we fought so hard to get to this point. Now we got to fight hard to just keep that point, let alone grow. And that was very difficult. And I think coming out of the recession, there was a couple of years just trying to recover, just trying to you know, get back to that solid five million dollar business, let alone think about going further. And I can remember you know, putting a poster on the wall. I think it was in 2009 saying by, you know, 2012, we're going to be a $20 million business. And, you know, the employees come in and going, you know, why this, this is never going to happen. Like, you know, we're never going to get this big. Why are you casting this vision? You know? And, um, and, and, you know, we kept building, we just tried to keep growing and growing and growing, but that business really stayed between three and a half million to 5 million until 2016. Hmm. And so it was a very tough slug, like just keep going and keep building and, and keep, you know, it, as long as we can be cash profitable and debt free, we can keep building the business a little bit. Um, and there's a lot of iterations to that point. But then in 2016, we took off. What? Okay. Well, why? I'm so curious. <laughs> what, what do you think? What one? Why do you think it was slow growing till then? And then what happened in 2016 to take off? Yeah, exactly. So, so, you know, quick growth to 2008, 2008 recession hits. Yep. Now you're dealing with a, you know, a year or two of just recovery, cash recovery. You know, sure. customers go bankrupt on us. We had to make up that ground, you know, trying to recover the business. In 2011, we had an opportunity to sell the business to a strategic. And, you know, you could, you could just imagine a couple of years after that recession, you're beat up as an entrepreneur. You, you've, you've gone through this tough slug. You have an opportunity to potentially sell the business, take a few chips off the table, albeit not that much. And we took that opportunity and we sold to a strategic and became part of a larger business. And uh, myself personally, I went to work for that strategic and part of, as part of their, their executive suite with their company. And uh, Rhombus or Brandpoint at that time became a little bit of the redheaded stepchild. It was a small, much smaller business and a much bigger ecosystem. Mm. Uh, we tried to insert some new management and it kept floundering. It just kept kind of floundering, floundering, floundering. And uh, what happened was in 2016, the larger strategic business was being sold. And uh, I ended up having a conversation with our VP of sales, Mike Hirsch at the time. And Mike was always our, our best sales rep, you know, whale hunter of a sales rep. And I had a conversation with him at that time. And I said, where do you see the business going? And what's your interest in this thing? Because I'm not so sure that the company buying this, you know, our, our larger business wants Brandpoint. Uh, but this is my baby. I started this in 2003 with a few other folks. And you're now the lead salesperson. Do you have any interest in taking this on? I think there's an opportunity. So in 2016, we acquired the business back from, from that uh, group that acquired us uh, back in 2011. And I can remember having this conversation with Mike and he said, John, I'm not just the sales guy. I also would like a chance at running this business. I think I know how I can get this done. Mm. Until that point, he'd always been reserved to, you're the whale hunter, go, go do some sales, you know, we'll take care of everything else. And the moment Mike became CEO of the business after we acquired it back in 2016, the business just took off. And he took the business from a little under 5 million that year 
to around 16 to 18 million. I can't really remember exactly where that hit that particular 16 year. And it just kept growing from there to 18 million, 20 million uh, through incredible sales efforts and him taking his energy and investing it into the operational business as well. And so that, that kind of, you know, took us to a whole different level. Wow. Was that hard making that transition and some of those decisions in that period or or did it make sense? Uh, it made sense. I, I can remember, and I'm sure entrepreneurs deal with this all the time when you're either going to sell your business or buy a business, you know, you have these second doubts, right? Uh, I can remember yeah. telling my wife, we were going to buy the business back and it was an over my dead body moment. Uh, you are not doing this, you know, no, uh, you know, <laughs> I don't want you to come back into this. This isn't going to make sense. But I, but I had the conviction and the trust in Mike where I was like, no, like this makes sense. It's a risk. I get it. We have to go PG alone at the bank. Uh, we have to go jump back in these waters, but I feel like this is our, this is my baby here. I don't want to lose this. Um, the other company's not interested in it. Uh, there are people that work there that their livelihoods might be at stake if we don't bring this thing back and we did it and, um, and grew it from there. And then I think, you know, the story keeps going in 2019, we made another acquisition and doubled the business and just continued to prosper and grow through the current leadership. Super cool. When you look back at at the, it doesn't have to just be with this company. It could be any of the, any of the companies you've been an entrepreneur for. Mm-hmm. What have you seen be some of the smartest investments you've made? And by smartest investment, I mean, it, what gave you the real ROI? Was it a, some kind of investment in your people? Was it a strategy? Was it, uh, I don't know. I just want to kind of look at that and say, like, if you've spent time, money, or energy on something in your business, yeah. what have you seen be one, give you the greatest return? Yeah. Um, Wow, there's a lot there. There, there. There's absolutely a lot. I can tell you that um, I can go from technology to people to culture to strategy, and, and there's probably a big learning in all of them, right? Like, yeah, yeah. I, I remember with one of the biggest successes we've had at BrandPoint was in 2005, we decided to move from an Excel spreadsheet onto Salesforce.com. Mm. And uh, at the time, I probably should have bought a lot of stock in Salesforce.com because it was a brand new company. Uh, <laughs> but we just gave the platform a task. And today, the business operates in a seamless manner in one infrastructure and ERP CRM system. It's really tight, right? Yep. An incredible investment. We, we customized the system over the years. We picked the right horse in that situation with Salesforce.com because we could have picked another one that no longer exists today. So a little bunch of luck in that one, but incredible investment in technology because I found that if your technology can all speak to each other, right? Your mm-hmm. operation, your sales, your finance, which is what we have today, you can accomplish some incredible things. You have clarity on where your business is, you know, all those kinds of things. So that's, that's, that's number one. Number two is, is tight finance, uh, which is somewhat related to your systems. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I definitely have learned over the years that if your business is a little too complicated, your financials are a little all over the place, you have no clue how you're really doing, and you're measuring yourself by revenue or by some other metrics that may not really tell you the full story, sure. uh, you can really get clobbered. Like I, I remember uh, one of the best videos I ever heard during the COVID pandemic where everybody was putting out a webinar uh, was one by the Growth Institute. Uh, and they had, they had a, a session on cash. And it really hit home at me again that you know revenue is vanity. Profit might be sanity, but cash is king. And if you don't know what your cash <laughs> position is and you don't know where you're at in your business uh, and you're just measuring yourself by how much sales you're doing and you have no clue really how, t- you know, your, your financial metrics, uh, you can really get clobbered. And that, that taught me a few lessons along the way. And it's something that I think has been a huge investment we've made in BrandPoint that has kept, you know, things really, really tight. And I think the last piece really, Drew, is 
um, people, culture, vision, and having, you know, having a plan. You know, I know mm. um, I've always loved working in an environment where I love the people I work with. Um, and whenever, you know, I've worked with people I don't love working with, it, it creates a toxic environment. So, you know, creating a great culture, a great team, having fun, uh, making sure people enjoy, the, you know, coming to work and, and, you know, building what they're building. But I think the investment in that culture is something that you, you got to keep building and building and building upon. Yeah. And that culture also gets built by having a vision. So one of the things that we invested in, in 2016 as well, at the same time was we started doing three to five year strategic plans mm. uh, using the Rockefeller habits, you know, yep. what's our, what's our forever plan, our 10 year plan, our five year plan, our three year plan, our one year plan, our quarterly plan for next year. And we would do that every year and we repeat that process. And it's so fun to go back and look at them now. Like, what did we say we'd be three years ago or five years ago and go, Oh my gosh, we're on target. Uh, Cause we, we broke down those plans. So the investment in having real good vision uh, really helped us in that area. Man, I love that. Yeah, I want to double click on that. I want to go deeper yeah. into into that. What when you when you we when you look specifically and say, okay, <clears throat> if I want to build a great team, I want this to be a great culture. What do I specifically like? Wh- where did you see high leverage activities? Right. Some people think just throwing a pizza party is going to create a great culture. But you're realizing like, well, vision is part of it, right? So you invested in the time to get long-term vision, break it all the way down into what we're doing today. What else did you realize is actually critical to create a great culture in a team? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I think that you can have as many pizza parties as you want. If people don't believe in where you're going or believe mm. you're actually going to get there, they'll lose faith in the pizza parties and be like, yeah, this is you know a lot of fun. They're trying to appease me as opposed to motivate me and excite me. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, one of the things we see a lot, and it's, it's happening more and more with the millennial generation too, is, you know, they want to know why, why are we doing this? And, and do I feel like I'm a part of it? And, you know, one of, one of the ways that I think we've been able to successfully do that, and it's a, a strategy that, a leadership strategy that I was taught a few years ago, is, you know, you lead your business servantly. Like, how can you serve your team? How can you help them be happier? What do they need? Listen to them. Uh, and help them along their journey as opposed to a dictatorship where you're telling them, hey, go there and now go to my pizza party. I'm going to try and make you feel good now. Mm-hmm. Um, so creating a certainly, where are they trying to go? What are they trying to achieve? Investing in their growth. You know, I think one, one of our core values um, of the business is uh, improve, perform, grow, and serve with integrity. And that's just not the company. It's yourself too. Like, are you improving? Are you growing? You know, are we investing enough in you? And, and that, you know, I think that's a critical nature to people feeling yeah. like they're a part of something as opposed to they're there for a paycheck. Yeah. Do you guys do anything to uh, measure and remind people of those values, you know, taking them from something that's just on the corporate website and whatever to mm-hmm. actually being a part of the decision making process? Like, you know, it, how, do, how do you make those real? How do you make yeah. those real in your company? I think one of them is uh, reassess every decision you make through those lens. Yes. Um, you know, uh, the integrity lens, the, the, are we performing? Are we improving? You know, are we innovating? You know, all those types of things. Certainly, you know, uh, monthly town halls we do as an organization cool. uh, on Zoom now, because um, we do have some remote people as well, where you're reminding them of where we're going, the vision, how we're going to get there is really important. Uh, annual conferences when we were able to do that was another mechanism to do that. Um, 
But I think a lot of it, you know, quite honestly, Drew, I think we see this time and time again, is if you ask uh, employees, are is this just a poster on the wall or is this for real? Um, they're not going to talk about the monthly town halls or the annual conferences or the pizza parties. They're going to talk about actions. Yeah. Their perception of the actions of leadership. And if the perception of the actions of the leadership match the values of the company, you have alignment. If the actions of the leadership don't match the values, there's not alignment. You can have as many pizza parties, monthly town halls as you want. Do they believe in the leadership and what they, are they, you know, talking the talk or are they walking the talk, right? You know, what is yeah. it? Yeah. Well, I, what's interesting is you, you mentioned the perception of the actions of the leadership, right? Sometimes yeah. it is both the actions are out of whack and sometimes it's the perception of the actions, like the optics of even if you maybe are living them, but you're something you're doing is sending a message mm-hmm. that is being perceived as being off, off of our values, right? Can you talk to that for a second? Just yeah. taking that seriously. Oh, I'll tell you, Drew, there's so many times as an entrepreneur, you feel like you're doing the right thing, but it's yeah. perceived the other way. Uh, you know, you feel like you're helping an employee because they're in a tough spot. So you give them a promotion or a raise, or you try and help their family out. Well, meanwhile, the other 10 people are like, why are you being favorite to this person over here? You know, there's yeah. so many different ways as an entrepreneur, you in your heart feel like you're doing the right thing, but the perception on the other side is completely opposite. Mm. And there's one thing that I that I've learned, and it's 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 part of the social media phenomenon too, is they call them influencers, right? So they'll pay Kim Kardashian as an example, millions of dollars to influence a population. Who are the influencers in your business that can help you with the messaging of what really is going on? Uh, Ooh, that's good. And so one of the things I think is really really important for entrepreneurs is to really make sure they have a really sound leadership team with them that can help with the culture of the organization. Because a lot of times you'll go to the water cooler for the metaphorical sense, right? And people are talking about, you know, why did John do this? Or why did John do that? And if you have one person in that group that can say, well, hold on, I think you guys got the perception wrong. Here's actually what's going on. And this is why this is happening. I think you guys got a twist. Like you need influencers in your business that really understand at a deep level what is going on to help you as an entrepreneur really, you know, pass out the, the good information that they might not be getting. Because as an entrepreneur, sometimes you think everybody knows what's going on. Exactly. And so they, the yes. perceptions now come in and you can't control the perceptions if you don't really have an influencing capability uh, to that. And you're running hundred miles an hour this way. You don't know what's being talked about at the water cooler. So having influencers in your business that you can really get in the inner circle, that really know what's going on, that have input into the decisions. You know, if you have an influencer that has input into a decision, you have, let's say you have a company, we have about 75 people. If you have 10 people in that group that are considered influencers, they're part of a circle and they have input into the decision that we're going to paint the walls orange and we go paint the walls orange. Well, if the other people on the staff are upset that we paint the walls orange, you now have 10 people going around the office going, no, like that was part of, you know, a bigger decision. Here's why we're doing it. This makes, and so you're influencing the culture in the positive direction. Oh, it's so good. I want to take, um, I want to take a little bit of a right turn here for a second and go back to something you mentioned early on. The lesson you learned around, I, I wrote down emotional regulation. I think you called it something different, but uh, able to alter your mood or or somewhat um, regulate yep. regulate your mood, right? Uh, talk to me about that. I get it, man. Like the emotional roller coaster of the of the entrepreneurial journey is wild. Yeah. And it is one of the hardest things to be able to survive, to see yourself through to the other side. What 
what, what, what is it? Is it a shift in mindset? Is it a practice? Is it any tools? Like, how do you actually uh, relate to that emotional regulation better? Yeah. I think it's perspective, a okay. lot of it. Um, you know, I, I think that a lot of entrepreneurs will get to the bottom of their learning curve and they'll have a moment. We call it the crisis of meaning. We're like, am I meant for this? Can I really get through this? And they mm. get through it and they get back up again. And then there's another situation and they come back down and they go, oh, am I meant for this? Really, uh, you know, persevering as an entrepreneur is the key to entrepreneurism. You know, we've, you know, we've all heard the stories of, you know, uh, you know, the, the best failures in life or Thomas Edison failing how many times before, you know, right. he had his inventions, right? Like that's part of entrepreneurism. But if every time you get to that bottom, your life falls apart, your stress level goes through the roof, you can't sleep at night, you can't eat, you lose nutrition, you get unhealthy, then why are you doing this? It's just, it's just not good for your soul. It's not good for your body. And so to be an entrepreneur, you really have to learn that success isn't like that. Success is a whole bunch of ups and downs and ups and downs. Right. And, and the lower you can make the downs and, and maybe even the lower the highs to regulate your mood uh, and have perspective, the better off you will be. Right. I'll yeah. give you a really good example. Non-related to business. I showed up at the gym yesterday because we had a little accident with a pickup truck that I have and the back of the tailgate got scratched. And I was bummed. So I go to the gym and my buddy pulls in with his truck as well. And I said, Hey, Joe, come over here. <laughs> Look what happened this morning. I got, like the garage door opened up, hit the tailgate. I got two scratches here. I'm like, this just didn't start my day off. Good, man. What do you think? And whatever. And he's like, don't worry about it, John, come look at me. And I, he says, walk over to the front of his truck. And the whole front of his new Raptor was like all banged in. <laughs> he T-boned a guy that night. Right. And he's like, you feel bad about your neck. Look what happened to me. I got to go in. This is like massive. Wow. Like, so don't feel so bad. Right. And think about every possible situation you could run into in business. Everything can be overcome. And think about perspective. You may be dealing with the fact that a customer didn't pay their bills on time. And so you're, scram you're scrambling. Right. So think about the entrepreneur who just lost his business because of COVID and they couldn't, you know. So there, if you have perspective in life and in business, it can really help you regulate your mood. Anytime mm -hmm. that I'll put myself in a position of, oh, poor me, like, here's what's going on. I can think about millions, if not thousands of people that have situations that are far worse than that. And it brings you back into perspective. I can get through this. It's yeah. not a big deal. Yeah. You know? and, and, and so that perspective has really helped me. And I think is really the key to unlocking when someone's really in the dumps. How do you regulate your mood? Have perspective. So good. I was telling somebody yesterday, I just don't trust the decisions that are made out of that down emotion, right? Like if you're, if you're too anxious, if you're too in survival mode, I just don't trust that we're making wise decisions versus knee jerk decisions that, that sound right in the moment. And so part of the emotional regulation is, is the quality of your life. The other part is like the quality of the decisions you're making at that time. Right. No doubt. Yeah, no doubt. I, you know, certainly if you are making decisions at a moment of high stress, they're most likely not going to be the best decision. It may not be right. a wrong decision, but they may not be the best decision. Right. It could be rash. It could be short-sighted. Uh, it just could be full of emotion, not logic, right? Yep. Uh, often we quit right before right before uh, some kind of breakthrough, right before the thing comes, but emotionally we just we couldn't take it anymore, right? I'm curious for you, what does it look like? We'll just stick with BrandPoint, but like, what does it look like in terms of your role 
changing as the company grows, right? So where your time was important spent early on versus today, where is your time best spent in the company? Yeah. Well, like most entrepreneurs that start a business and bootstrap the business, you're the chef, cook, and bottle washer. You know, I was the project coordinator for the first Fuji project we did. Yeah, I became right. then a project manager. Once I hired a project coordinator, I was also the bookkeeper and the secretary and the receptionist and everything else. Right. So you grow up in your business as you bootstrap something and you do every role. I was the sales rep at one point. I was the sales manager at one point. You, know, you do all of those roles. Um, today at Brandpoint, you know, we have a CEO and president uh, that, that fully operate the business. So I'm not in the full-time operational role. I'm more on the, on the chairman side of, of the business, but I understand every single nook and cranny of the business. Yep. And so I spend a lot of my time uh, executive coaching our, our CEO and president, Mike and Steve, and a lot of time on strategic growth plans uh, that I can assist them with. Uh, for example, we're in the middle of, uh, of completing a small tuck under acquisition right now, looking at a couple other ones, doing some capital planning, you know, things of that nature. Sure. So really uh, taking myself out of the day-to-day operations that these guys are the best in the world at, getting out of their way, let them lead the growth of the business and really enabling the future growth of the company. How did you know when, when it was time for you to do that? How did you know when it was time to say, hey, you know what, I think, it, we, think we need to put a, a CEO and a president in that's not me and let me move to a different you know, elevation in the business. And how did you know that was time? Yeah, well, back in our history, so when we initially sold the company in 2011 to a strategic, uh, I had exited the operational elements of that business at that point to go work with the uh, executive suite of the strategic company, which is a much larger business. And we put in a general manager to run BrandPoint. And that, you know, the business kind of floundered, didn't go so well, right? And in 2016, when we decided to buy the business back, Mike and I, yep, um, Mike said, hey, I, I, w- I want to run this business. So I was really a strategic investor with Mike at that point to buy the business. So I was like, Mike, I'm backing you. I got gotcha. you. Uh, so we bought the business back. Mike became the CEO. And Mike then took that business from sub 5 million to 60 million where it is today. So at no point in that journey, it was like, I'm be like, Hey, Mike, I'm going to come in and run this thing. You got it. Uh, yeah. 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 And yeah. So I became really more of uh, a partner, a coach, uh, strategic planning. You know, when we com- completed the acquisition in 2019 to, to more than double the company, really, I, I jumped in at that particular moment and took a year to, to perform the financial diligence, complete the transaction, the capital planning. Uh, so what I found to be a really good partnership is, you know, you always hear the concept, don't work in your business, work on your business. Uh, I think I've found that sweet spot. Uh, mm. I am working on the brand point business, not in the brand point business as an entrepreneur. Yeah. And I have the best in the world working in the business and the CEO and president and VP of sales and COO and CFO. I don't need to go do their job. Uh, I need to help them with what they need to continue to further grow the business. Yeah, it's so good. I want to I wanna just keep talking about you or taking a look at you for a second. What would you say is, as you look back and you've, you've gained some self-awareness and seen yourself in different roles, uh, what would you say is, is kind of your superpower? What's your unique ability? The thing that, you know, you've learned over time, if I, if I could be used in the situation for one or two things, here's the thing I know how to add the mass, most value to. Leadership. Okay. Leadership. And that. you're going to, yeah. And you're going to say, well, that's too, too vague, right? Um, here. I'll give you a really good example. And this is something that, that was an aha moment for me on leadership. 
when our company was acquired in 2011 and I became part of a larger strategic uh, executive suite, that business was in the, the third party logistics space. They did transportation and warehousing for very, very large companies across, across America. And the owner of that business said, John, I want you to come on board with our executive suite and I want you to be the VP of operations for our logistics company. And I looked at him cross-eyed and I said, I don't know anything about logistics. I don't know anything about warehousing, anything about transportation. I think you got this wrong. I'm not the right guy for you. And he looked at me again and says, look, I'm not looking for an engineer who's an expert in transportation or, or logistics or warehousing. I'm looking for someone who can help lead the team. Mm-hmm. And so that was interesting. I was like, okay, I know I can do that. Uh, if you're looking for an entrepreneurial leader, I can lead the team. And so I start meeting with the other directors of logistics and warehousing. And that's where I learned servant leadership because I couldn't actually tell them how to do their job better. They knew how to do their job better. What they needed was for me to help get them the tools and resources they needed to do their job better. So I became really, I really found my sweet spot of servant leadership, which was, and I use this today with Mike and Steve in in the Brandpoint business. You know, my conversation with them is, what do you need? What do you Mm. need to take this business from 60 to 100? That's what I'm going to help you with. I'm going to make my whole life around what do you need? And I had learned that in that role because I was meeting with these directors of, of warehouses, you know, these really smart engineers and lean, uh, you know, experts. And I'd say, look, I can't tell you how to do this, but you tell me what you need. I'm going to go get it. Wow. Uh, and so that servant leadership key has really been fundamental for me because historically I had to go do as an entrepreneur. Yeah. I had to go yeah. do it myself. I had to be the project coordinator. I had to be the sales <clears> rep. I had to be the janitor, the finance person. My, the evolution that I've had over the past you know, decade to being more of a servant leader has really paid huge dividends. I love that, man. I want to know if someone's listening right now and they're in the earlier stage of the business where they are doing both, having to work on the business and in the business, right? They, they are critical to making, servicing the, 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 the product or servicing the customer as well as trying to grow and scale the business. And they're stuck because sometimes you hit a, you hit you hit kind of a ceiling because you're still in the business. You just don't have the time, or you're not making the time to think bigger and make the right moves that would scale beyond you. And you're almost creating a cap, right? Because the business is still dependent on you, you're still creating a cap. What advice would you give to to a person at that stage? Yeah. Well, first is don't give up because we could have given up many, many, many times along that journey to say, ah, you know, we're not growing beyond 5 million. Let's just quit this. And it's not working, you know, and yeah. be done. And, and to your point of entrepreneurs, you know, we tend to work in the business. We're too busy. We got to get the tasks done. We don't have time for it, but what really helped me. And it was, you know, where, when we really took our journey up was when we started doing our three to five year strategic plans and, these do not take a long time, Drew. Like literally like a half day with your top team in a room. Yeah. And you can go through a three to five year plan of what are our key thrusts? Like, what are we going to go create and do? And in some of those plans was we need a CFO. And we went to bring a CFO and that augmented our team. Or was, we need mm. to hire two sales reps or whatever the plan was. We held ourselves accountable to that plan. And what that did is brought great resources, great people into the business, which helped elevate Mike and myself to be able to work more on the business than in the business. So yeah. you know, ultimately the story is the way you work more on your business and your business is have more great people in your business that are helping replace you in the role that you're doing. Yeah. But that doesn't happen overnight. There's a mm. lot of trial and errors, a lot of hiring the wrong people sometimes, a lot of you know movement. But what always kept us aligned, like the compass for us, 
which is having a very, very clear one page, three to five year plan. Mm. Very simple and hold yourself accountable to it and review it every year. And it takes half a day. Every entrepreneur should be able to do half a day to have that plan to work on their business and give them yeah. direction with their inner circle of where they want to take it. Did you use, um, did you use kind of a, a somebody else's format for, for doing that like EOS or s- scaling up Fern Harnish or something like that? Did you guys yeah. use somebody's questions to help filter that, that conversation or just kind of approach it yourself and guys, let's just think about three years from now. No, no, no. We used a format. Um, I believe it was a format taken from uh, Rockefeller Habits, yeah. but it's extremely similar to the scaling up Vern Harnish uh, model. Yeah, because I know he, he pulls on the Rockefeller Habits. And stuff. Yeah. yeah, like, you know, the system that we've worked or the, the one we worked, you know, I don't think that it's a, a trademarked one out there necessarily. I think we kind of customize it a little bit over time, but it's the components of all of them. Yeah. And I think, Drew, for me, like, it doesn't matter. Pick one, right? Pick EOS, pick Same. scaling up, pick Rockefeller Habits, pick one. But have, have a plan, have a three to five year plan that you know, what are you going to do next year to move the needle and keep going? Yeah. Yeah. And you can update those, right? Like if you're taking your best guess early on in the business, but things change, it was still better that you move that direction, got some updated information, and then you can change the three-year vision as you're growing, right? Absolutely. We, we So every year when we sit down for this, we actually now bring the 2016 one, 17 one, 18 one, 19 one, 20, we put them all on the table mm. and now we're going to create the 21 or 22. Right. And we can see the journey we took over the years and what we changed, what we changed our mind on, what we thought was this way, but no, maybe it's this way, or we wanted to go down this segment, but that was a bad idea. Now we're going down this segment. Yes. And, and we do cast a vision, you know, it's not like, well, let's grow by 5%, you know, in the next three years, we do throw it out there because you have to challenge your thought process, right? There's the, the 10 X, uh, philosophy, right? Like yep. if, if you think big, you'll be able to get big. So what is your long-term range plan? And if you don't have a big enough vision for your team, then they won't be bought into it either. Yeah. So, you know, having that, that real cast of vision and, and, uh, was really important in that plan. That's so good. Well, man, this has been super enlightening. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I want to make the most of your time and I want to ask us our five lightning round questions Uh, before we end this interview. So let's start with number one. If you could ingrain one message into your entire organization, what would it be? It has to be our, our, our values, right? Uh, Improve, perform, grow, and serve with integrity. Mm. And, and, and we always say it's both the company do that for the company, but also do it for yourself. Perfect. I love that. All right. Question number two. What is the single best advice you've ever gotten about growing your business? And also, what was the worst? Okay. So I think I'll stick with the theme we've had in this conversation. To grow your business, you have to work on your business. And what we've done to work on our business is a three to five year strategic plans that we create every year and mm. we modify every year. That has helped us grow the business. In terms of the worst, listen, <laughs> every entrepreneur has people walking into their office every day telling them they need to overinvest in their business. Hire people before the business comes. Get a new office space because it will help the culture. Uh, do all these different types of things. And when you go a little bit too far over your skis and you're no longer a cash profitable, debt-free business where you control the equity of your business, you're heading in the wrong direction. And the worst part about being an entrepreneur is being called cheap. Uh, and when you're really trying to do the best for your balance sheet in the business and you have to hold that line, 
uh, as much as possible. Whenever you're getting advice to over-invest above your skis, I've learned that to uh, be a very big mistake. Mm, man, that's actually timely. <laughs> that's, a great, that's great advice. All right, number three, what causes you the most stress or worry leading your organization? I think it's the livelihoods of the people in your business. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we didn't have time in this conversation, but I, I had an experience um, that uh, had hundreds and hundreds of lives in the business and one or two fatal decisions ruined the company and everybody looking for new careers and new opportunities and such a great cultured business, right? Um, you have to be really, really careful. You know, there are certain decisions you can make tomorrow. Like, are we going to get a new water cooler? We're we going to paint the walls. Certain decisions you can make very simple. When it comes to over-investing, saying yes to everything, uh, taking on new equity partners, hiring key pe people in your company, really vet those decisions out carefully because uh, the livelihoods of everybody in that business is at stake. And if you damage that, it really hurts. Mm, man, really good. I'm not, I'm not patronizing. I'm serious. You got my, I'm sitting back thinking about your answers right now in context of my own business. It's really good. Okay. Uh, number four, what is your BHAG, your big, hairy, audacious goal at this point for the company? So part of that three year, three or five year plan, Drew, it asked the question, what is your BHAG? And I could actually go back to our plans and see that BHAG keep moving. Yeah. You know, our BHAG really started off as we want to build a hundred million dollar, um, you know, uh, business in our space. And uh, we now have that line of sight. Like we have the clear roadmap in the next year or two where that's going to be attained. It's no longer a BHAG. So <laughs> last year, actually, we updated our BHAG uh, to now we'd like to get to a quarter billion dollar uh, commercial uh, facilities maintenance construction company uh, and are creating the roadmap for that BHAG. And that, that BHAG isn't like next year or two years. We're talking like five to 10. Right. Yeah. where we want to get there, but that's our new BHAG. And I think that if you don't have a BHAG, even if you're not sure how you're going to get there, you got to throw something out there and really start you know, seeing how it directs you. Yeah. I'm curious. Do you have one for yourself personally, not just for, for this business, but like, do you ever use that thinking towards, towards you personally? Yeah. In, in terms of the BHAG mentality? Mm, yeah. Yeah. No, for I don't you and your family or just like a vision for your life that's oh yeah yeah De definitely uh vision i don't know if i go to the BHAG level right uh, yeah, yeah but but certainly have for myself whether it be professional um uh personal health financial you know i do have my here's what i want to be in five years here's what i want to be in three years or i want to be next year what am i going to do this month what am i going to do this week what am i going to do today that's the one thing Yep. Uh, I love the one thing and the one thing planner, which is what is the one thing I'm going to do today that's going to help me achieve my goal this week, this month, this year, this three, five year segment. So I do break that all the way down, but uh, I don't necessarily go to the BHAG level. I go to more, uh, you know, goal oriented. Metrics. Love that. Love that. All right, cool. Question number five is our fun uh, kind of creative question. So you, you can take this however, however you want, really. Right. If you could hop into a DeLorean, go back to the past and tell yourself just one thing out the driver's side window as you drive by, when would you go back and what would you tell that younger version of yourself? When you run a profitable, debt-free, cash-profitable, debt-free business, there's no real reason to ever give up your equity. And 
if you keep that mindset of cash profitable debt-free business and continue building upon it, you will have the money to invest in your strategies and your growth yourself, as opposed to bringing on external capital to go do it. Yeah. If I had to go back and tell myself one thing, it would be that combined with what we talked about earlier, don't chase revenue. I, too many times in my life, I chased revenue because it was vanity. It looked good. It looked good to say, we're growing 20%. We're growing 100%. We're growing to 100 million. This sounds awesome. But if you're going to grow to 100 million and have a ton of debt on the business, not own a lot of it, what are you trying to accomplish? So right. what is your end result? Why are you trying to get there? And most of the time for entrepreneurs, if you have a cash profitable business, you're debt free, you're able to reinvest in your business and ultimately get to your ultimate destination that you desire. Love it. I love it. John, man, this has been super fascinating. I want to make sure uh, that we also give this audience the resource of your podcast. So remind us again of the podcast that you guys host so we can we can send them there as well to keep their learning journey going. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you. So uh, my co-host and, and I, Rich Hoffman, Rich Hoffman's the vice president of leadership development for Serta Pro Painters, a dear friend of mine. We worked at College Pro Painters together as, as uh, franchisees, GMs. He was with Handyman Online. He was with Brandpoint at one point. Now he's with Serta Pro. So long lasting relationship with him. We host uh, the Entrepreneurs United podcast and, you know, very similar to what you guys do here. It's really trying to impact other entrepreneurs through lessons uh, yeah. learned from other entrepreneurs. We bring on a lot of keynote speakers that have messages for entrepreneurs, a lot of authors of business books to talk about their main key concepts. Uh, and uh, yeah, you can find that on uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube. And uh, yeah, appreciate everybody checking it out. Awesome. Awesome. Guys, check it out. John, thank you so much for being here today, buddy. Great. Thanks, Drew. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.